you know, we are here in the Southeast. Our situation's a little bit unique, and it's going to be different anywhere in the country or even across the globe. But that's the nice thing about regenerative agriculture is there's no hard and fast rules. That's the great thing about poultry is they're a quick turnaround. So even if you have a big, long winter, you can raise poultry in the spring or summer, and, and then you know they're finished and harvested before you know the hard freeze sets in. So this kind of thing can be applicable um, at a lot of different geographic locations, and you can use poultry or silver pasture and grow trees and, and raise poultry in, in wooded areas. And so you can utilize a lot of areas of, of land that typically wouldn't be suitable for row crops, for example. And so I think that really opens up a lot of opportunity at different places. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Well, you heard me say many times, all over the world, there are people that are looking to get involved in agriculture, to start farming operations, to improve their farming operations, to, to go with nature. And, and I'm going to prove my point today because we're traveling to South Carolina, and I'm going to talk to Jeff Suwiki. And uh, Jeff, welcome to Farm to Table Talk. Hey, Roger. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Well, Jeff, you reached out because you've heard Farm to Table talk and and you sent me a note and said, well, you're on a journey. And I love stories about journeys. I, I, I love these stories that often start with uh, kind of the old Tina Turner song. I had a good job in the city and uh, working for the man every night and day. And that might not be exactly your story, but you're one of these people that thought, gee, I would rather be trying to get a farm started and you did it and you're able to get not only get yourself going in this direction but you're getting ready to help other people so let's talk about that jeff so at at some stage what made you think that instead of having a job with a corporation like a lot of people want to have these days that instead you would like to be farming I mean, when did that come to you? Were you having a bad day or something or stuck in traffic and saying, <laughs> this sucks, I, I want to be out out in the country? How'd that happen? Yeah, yeah, something like that. Um, I was working a corporate job and in the medical field and um, was just, just really tired of the, you know, the corporate politics and, and just feeling like, you know, I wasn't really making a difference or doing what I love to do. Um, and while that was happening, um, my wife and I moved out to a rural area and bought a small piece of land and we started, um, raising or growing some of our own food. We started a little garden and I started raising some poultry. We got about, uh, 25 chickens and, uh, I was learning about this, um, you know, this pastured poultry movement. And so I built a little chicken tractor, a little shelter that I, put them in and moved them around in the backyard for a little while. Um, and we moved them every day and the birds ate a lot of grasses and bugs and stayed healthy and clean. And then their manure was left behind and, um, helped enrich the soil. And we harvested those birds and we ate a few and gave some to friends and family. And, um, it was the best chicken we ever had. And, um, and after talking to some other folks, they said, this is great. And I said, well, 
man, maybe there's something to this whole thing. Um, and really got excited about the possibilities of farming. And I said, Hey, maybe this is something that I can make a go at and, and potentially get out of this rat race, so to speak, and, and do something different. Well, you know what? I love these stories, and you've heard some of those stories before. Some other people, uh, our friend Ben up in uh, Canada, he's he's had done something similar, and he's expanding to other livestock as, as well right now. And there's other people, literally around the world, that I've talked to. Um, but I'm I'm curious. Um, I understand the motivation when you're looking at it at first, and then you get to go to the country. But even before that, were you ever either? Were you raised somewhere that you had chickens or did you ever try chickens in your backyard before you moved to the country? <laughs> no. Um, and, and if you had told me I'd be a chicken farmer 20 years ago, I would have laughed at you, but um, <laughs> no, I, I, you know, I, I enjoyed being in the outdoors and working with animals. I have a background in biology. Um, and so I enjoyed that aspect. Um, but I think what really hooked me into it um was when I started raising these birds, it just felt right. And then when I started learning about the impact they could have um, on the land and how they can, you know, all their manure is just super nitrogen rich and it's just great nutrients for the soil and helps the crops grow better and helps sequester carbon. And and then you hear a lot of this stuff about climate change and you hear, you know, how agriculture is responsible from depending on which source you look at 20 to 30% of greenhouse gas and emissions um, it seemed like a real opportunity to, to not only grow great food, but also, um, a new career path that I could take something that, that meant something to me and also make a difference, uh, or try to make a, a small impact in our, in our local environment and our community and, and help, uh, do things a better way. Um, and so that was a huge motivator to, to get this farm started and get going. So you didn't have chickens before you actually moved out to the country then? No, no, we uh, we bought some land, so we said, "Hey, let's, let's get some birds and grow a little garden and see where this goes." Um, so and when, so when I started say, reading. I mean, when you say you got some some land, I'm not that familiar with uh, yeah. the, the look of the agriculture are, around Charleston. You're not doing what corn, or otherwise, what corn, soybeans, or tobacco, or what? What would be the neighbors normally put on the fields that are around you? Yeah, so the farmland we bought um, actually has a long history of, of agricultural use, um, and mostly it was it was just that it was produce. Um, you know, they were, uh, talked to some of the people that had been there for a long time, and their families had been there for a long time, and and they tell you know they told me that a lot of the lands around there were they're growing you know squash and watermelon and okra and beans and corn and all kinds of things, um, and the land we bought is was forested we got uh nine acres and it was mostly densely dense woods and um which isn't too great for farming typically um and so um we figured a way to make it work we um you know built a, a small house there and started clearing some of it to raise some some animals and to grow a garden and um that was kind of a, a big motivator. It's kind of let's, how can we make this land that was once uh, a thriving agricultural community, you know, um, bring it back to the way it used to be. Cause it's been, it, when we moved on, it had been 30 or 40 years since anybody had done any type of farming on the land. It was just dense woods that had just grown. These fields had all grown up. 
Um, and we said, well, how can we bring it back to some productive farming land again? Um, and so it, it was a long venture um, and learned a lot of hard lessons along the way. Um, but, um, but we feel like we really, uh, we really hit our stride this past year. So, so did you have to clear some trees then to, to make enough space to have a little pasture for your chickens? Yeah, exactly. We had several acres that we um, were, I was fortunate because there was some, um, there was a company logging nearby and I happened to see the logging trucks there. And, and normally a logging company wouldn't fool with, you know, four or five acres. It's just not worth the time and effort to move all their equipment down. Um, but since they were really close, they're about a half a mile away. I said, Hey, I've got a couple acres of some, some big mature pine trees. And, um, these, these are large pine trees, predominantly, you know, 40 to 50 years old. And, and, um, they said, yeah, we'll be happy to come on by since they already had the equipment close, close by. And they came by and took those mature pine trees out. And I was thrilled to get them out of there because pine trees don't really provide much value in terms of economics or, or food production or habitat. Um, you know, they're, they're great for, for two by fours, but that's about it. They're, they're, uh, a pine forest is in a lot of ways a, uh, uh, a food desert to the wildlife. So, um, so we're happy to get those pine trees out of there, clear it out so we could start raising some animals, plant a garden. And now we're actually interplanting it with, um, with trees, uh, fruit and nut trees as well. Wow. Well, you're going to make some people a little upset because you cut down trees, uh, you know, worrying about climate <laughs> change. But on the other hand, you've chosen animals that don't belch. So, um, you know, that's another whole issue. But one thing chickens aren't really uh, complained about, except for probably the, the larger scale kind of more uh, in, industrial size type of operations get a, get a fair amount of criticism, but you're not doing that either. I mean, you're raising chickens and you're raising them out on pastures and you're moving them around and probably improving your pasture in the process. Uh, you know exactly. what? I, I'm, I, excuse me for making the, the terrible pun because I don't know which came first, the chicken or the egg here. And, and when you're deciding you're going to do this and you're out, uh, and you're looking at getting into this operation. I mean, the first thing you do is you have to you pick out a kind of chicken that you're going to get, or do you build uh, you build something to house them in, and then start. You know, what do you do first? Yeah, so I think um, the first thing you have to do is if you you have to decide if you want to make this a business or or a hobby. Um, I think that's the difference between a homestead and a farm. A homestead, you're just kind of growing food for yourself, which is perfectly fine. Um, and that's how I started. Um, but if you want to make this an actual farm, you, you need to make a profit. And if you want to make it a farm and a business, you need to do think about it a little bit differently. Um, so the first thing um, I tell folks is you need to think of uh, these types of breeds that are going to be uh, productive for you. Um, and, and that would be the first thing to decide on is, um, you know, which, which, if you want to raise poultry, which type of breed is going to work for me? There's a lot of breeds out there that are marketed as dual purpose you know, they lay some eggs or also grow to a decent size so you can eat your chickens as well. Um, but I think you really need to decide, um, if I want to make this as a business, I need to, you know, farming is hard enough as it is, right? There, there's so many factors out of our control. And, and there's so many things that just are unexpected that pop up. Um, sure. So you need to make this as easy on yourself as possible if you want to try and be successful, because if you're not trying to profit in a farm at the end of the day, you're not going to be farming for very long. 
Um, so I say choose a breed that's going to be very productive uh, for you. So in fact, what I'd like to do is maybe share um, uh, a list of my top uh, poultry breeds, both chicken sure, and duck sure. for meat and Tell egg me production. And I'm happy to, to share that with you guys. Um, uh, and I can I can put a list in the description at, at some point it'll be posted but yeah but uh, but just off the top of your head give us the, the the top half dozen or so and tell us a, a little bit about what you ended up choosing and why yeah so we started with chickens um, and there's a you know the most popular chicken is the Cornish cross that's your commercial breed um, and it's, and the reason they have that bird is because it's a fast growing chicken. Um, you'll get a marketable weight in about seven to eight weeks versus some of these other breeds, you know, might take 16, 17, 18 weeks and it's about half the size. Um, so it's costing you a lot more time, a lot more land and a lot more labor to get the same product or same amount of pounds out of that bird. Um, we, we raised chickens for a little while and then we noticed that a lot of our neighbors, there are several other people already raising chicken. Um, and then with our system, we use an electric netting system and we move them around and chickens, they don't really move when you want them to, or they kind of look at you and they go different directions or they don't move at all. <laughs> and so, um, we found that, that ducks really worked well for our area. Um, we get about 50 inches of rain a year, it stays pretty wet. It's very flat ground. And you know, the more rain, the happier the ducks are, and we can herd them very easily. So when we rotate our birds every day or every other day, um, as long as we get that lead duck kind of moving in the direction we want to move it, we've been able to move birds, you know, four or 500 birds, you know, a quarter mile down the road to a neighboring field, um, you know, by myself. I've heard them. It's actually quite comical to see 500 birds walking down the road um, <laughs> um, to the next field. But, um, as long as we get that lead duck going, it's does a dog help with that? I mean, I have use dogs dog, to herd sheep. I didn't know whether you could <laughs> use a dog to herd ducks. Absolutely. There are some out there, and they are, they are pretty impressive. I've seen them work before. Um, they A lot of times I've seen people use border collies for that sort of thing, um, but I don't have one. Uh, I'd love to, but I think that would quite, uh, take quite the effort you know, for me to, to, to train one to that to that level, and I, I, I haven't had the time to do that, but... Um, but, but yeah, usually just by myself or sometimes I'll have one other person help. And as long as we kind of get them steered in the right direction, usually it works pretty well. Um, and so the ducks have been great for us. And we used a, a jumbo pecan going back to breeds. Um, they are a large uh, breed uh, pecan duck, which is kind of like the white Aflac duck uh, that gets to a very large size in a short amount of time. And I think that's key, especially if you're raising something for meat um, uh, to get that attainable size. Um, Did I hear you say are, Affleck, the Affleck duck? That's right. Yeah, the white Affleck duck. That would be yeah, a, the ones we see on commercials be, all the time. The, 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 that's right. Ah, yep. Okay, yep. so everybody listening to this, every time, next time you see the Affleck duck, you can you can think about <laughs> Jeff raising those in South Carolina. That's right, and they all say Affleck too. Every single one of them. It's amazing. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, so, but the, yeah, so I think that's. So when you say poultry, thing. I just automatically went straight to chickens, and I don't usually yes. think about poultry. And on your website, show picture picture of a turkey too. So do you actually have some turkeys? In the yeah, we do turkeys um, seasonally. So we raise turkey pasture, raised turkeys for Thanksgiving customers, um, 
And then uh, we also, we're trying to expand the turkey operation so we'll have more turkey available year round. Not many people buy turkeys outside of Thanksgiving, but uh, we have found that there's options um, such as doing ground turkey and, and different sausages and things like that, that we can kind of spread those turkeys out and sell more throughout the year other than just as a whole turkey for Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I really love turkeys because um, they're a great uh, forager. So they're a great species if you're raising in a field-based system. Uh, another thing we do is we plant a lot of seeds and we plant a lot of our own seed. Um, so this goes into, ties into, um, I guess your kind of holistic view of your farm. And, and one thing we want to do with the farm is we want to be a regenerative farm. And, and what regenerative means to me is, is trying to minimize our input, um, trying not to have any waste or recycling any waste products, and then, um, integrating and using diversity on our farm. And so, uh, one of the ways that we try to minimize our feed costs instead of buying feed that's grown in Iowa, uh, corn that's grown in Iowa, shipped to South Carolina, processed in a feed mill, and then shipped to my house for me to take to my poultry. Um, I'd rather just seed out my pastures, put small grains out there, and let the birds self-harvest when it goes to seed. Um, and so turkeys are great at doing that. Um, they're very resilient. Um, they're great at finding bugs and, and, and self-harvesting seeds. And so that reduces our feed bill. Um, but it also dramatically lowers our carbon footprint. Uh, the biggest carbon footprint, uh, the greenhouse gas emissions is from feed production typically, uh, with most poultry farms. Wow. That's, in, that's impressive. And the, yeah. uh, now you talked about the ducks and I see you've got a picture on your website. You showed, uh, geese, so ducks, geese, turkeys, and are you, are you growing ch- chickens too? We started with chickens, um, but we've since moved to ducks. We don't do many chickens anymore. Okay. Mostly the ducks is our, and, and turkeys are our primary production uh, bird. The geese are there. Um, I, we hope that maybe one day in the future we'll kind of use them as a production uh, bird. The great thing about geese is you don't really need to give them very much feed. They can subsist off of grass, which is fantastic. Um, but th- we haven't found much of a market for them yet. Um, the primary purpose of the geese is they are our guard geese. Um, so they will um, be in the pen with our ducks and they will squawk and make a lot of racket if a hawk or something flies near. And so they keep, they kind of protect the flock as their own, um, as their own offspring almost. And, and so they keep them safe from a lot of those aerial predators during the day. What about coyotes? We do get some coyotes and foxes on occasion. Um, we have each pen, each cell is, is an electric net that's solar charged and it's electrified. So usually if those four-legged predators, you know, be it a dog or coyote or a fox, touches that fence, they'll get a nice jolt and, and they typically don't, don't test it again and, and it keeps our birds safe. Every now and then we'll get one that, that charges through it or digs underneath it. Um, but the electric fencing is great because we can make it any size as small or as large as we want and the birds get lots of room to, to range and, and get a lot of their own and forage for a lot of their own food you know i live along the uh, american river in sacramento and and we've got mm-hmm. uh, wild turkey in our front yard and i've got uh, uh, geese in the river and ducks in in the river went, and um, and and the turkeys are they just got such attitude i really like them 
you know, they are, <laughs> they're so brave, but they're just, they're almost comical. I don't know whether the, when you're growing them in the pasture or not, but here every once in a while, they decide to go out and stop traffic and they'll circle a <laughs> circle a car and pick at the bumper and they're 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 funny animals <laughs> yeah i like the turkeys i kind of have a soft spot for them because they're really curious um it's funny whenever i go out to feed them they 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 walk straight towards you and they kind of like look at you like they want a little pat on the head like you know almost like the family dog you know <laughs> they're yeah. really curious and really friendly um and calm so i i do enjoy the turkeys yeah they kind of um, turn their yeah, head sideways don't they sometimes Mm-hmm. They kind of tilt they their do. head, looking at these crazy big turkeys, and then certain times a year they make their their feathers spread out and look beautiful. Is that when they're uh, courting? That uh, is that time of the year that they show off the their tail feathers. Yeah, they do. Um, they'll strut, and they'll so the males will you know fan out their tail feathers to kind of display for the females and attract females. And it's funny because we'll even see the very young juvenile turkeys that are you know, only seven or eight weeks old in the, you know, and sometimes you'll see these little tiny little males, you know, strutting and spreading out their feathers. And it's so funny to see them, you know, these little things, you know, already strutting for the ladies. Um, uh, so it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. I like, I like reading the turkeys. They're fun for sure. So, you know, I mean, right out the bat, I think about when you go out the country, like you do, uh, to go poultry, um, you, you need, smaller equipment and fences and and stuff i mean so i I can see some advantages versus putting out a cow calf operation out in the land or or even sheep and goats for that matter they're a little bit more uh trouble than than poultry but this is still kind of a new idea to a lot of people when they think of pasture raising things they think of just ruminants to be able to take advantage obviously of digesting things with four stomachs that that we can't but with the but the whole idea with poultry of how they make the best use of pasture and finding food out uh, along the pasture is new to many people um and so i'm i'm still i still have a hard time picturing maybe you could explain a little bit what do you feed them that you have to bring and what do they find when they're out pecking around in the uh in the pastures yeah, so um, they when we raise them on pasture, um, they get about a third of their diet from just grasses and bugs and seeds that they find that are just naturally living in the environment. Um, we do have we do supplement their diet, so the other two thirds we would give them a, a chicken feed. Um, now, what my you know my idealistic goal would be to not have to give them any feed at all or very little. And so there's a number of different things that we have experimented with in order to reduce that feed usage because um, it's great. Like I said before, it reduces our feed bill, but it also uh, reduces our carbon footprint. So one way in which we do that and kind of supplement their diet is by putting out seed. And so we'll grow small grains such as millet, um, sorghum, um, you know, soybeans, uh, clovers, these kinds of things we'll seed out in the pastures. And so we'll let a lot of those small grains like millet and uh, things go to seed and then let the birds eat it right there off the stalk. Um, it sure is a lot easier just to let them do the work than for us to plant and, and, and then harvest and then combine and then dry and then make into a feed and then transport and then give them the feed. You know, it just, it reduces a lot of work. Um, uh, and so, and some of the other things we, we have done uh, in order to supplement their diet would be um, we also partnered with a local brewery 
and they use a lot of their grains in the brewing process at the distillery. And so we've been collecting their scent brewery grain and supplementing that into the bird's diet. Um, so the oats and barley, um, we will add to their diet as well. Um, and a third thing that we do that we recycle is sometimes when we have birds that are either killed by a predator or we have eggs that are cracked that we can't use or uh, we have you know kitchen waste, things like this. Sometimes we'll, we, we also work a lot with restaurants. Um, we deliver a lot of products to local restaurants. We'll get a lot of their scraps. And so we'll put all this stuff into a, a large bin. And there's a fly called the black soldier fly. And it's a, um, it's, it's a non-biting fly. It can't bite you, but it, it uh, lays its eggs and grows its larvae and, you know, kind of rotting food material. And so we'll actually grow these maggots and, 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 and the rotting food. And the great thing about the larvae is they're just packed full of protein. I think they're about 40% protein and 35% fat. So they're highly nutritious and um, we'll give those to our birds as well. Um, so we're doing a number of different things to try to supplement their diet. And the goal is one day we can be a hundred percent self-reliant and not rely on, um, you know, someone else growing, growing our feed. You really are regenerative. <laughs> we're trying to get there. Yeah, we're trying to get there. And I think, I think that's the big thing about farming is I think um, we've done things the same way for so long. I think there's a, a huge opportunity to really um, change the way we do things and, and, and for the better, uh, not only for the farmer, but for the birds and for the environment as a whole. Um, another thing that we do is uh, what's called silvopasture. And so I mentioned before that we have our uh, pasture that we cleared of the pine trees. Well, um, now we're replanting that with a different fruit and nut species. Um, and so what that does is the, the poultry and the trees are just a great symbiotic relationship. Um, the trees produ- provide shade and predator protection for our poultry. Um, they keep the soil cool. Um, they prevent flooding because any excess water in the field, if anyone's ever driven out in your field after a long, heavy rainstorm, you know how muddy and you're, you're going to get your truck stuck in there, you know. Well, if you have trees, they soak up a lot of that excess water and keep it from flooding and getting soggy. Um, and then the the poultry provide for the trees. Um, they act as the lawnmowers, our pest control, and our fertilizer program all in one. So they fertilize them. They eat the grass and weeds around it. They eat any bugs. And it's just a great symbiosis. And now we're producing on the same acreage. I'm growing fruit and trees. I'm growing poultry. And I'm growing the grasses and forages all in the same acreage. So that's three products off the same acreage. Um, so it makes it, um, it gives our farm diversity. Um, all the, there's a great symbiosis between each of those parts. And it, um, it makes us more profitable and more productive. Uh, we're getting more food products. And then we're getting the long-term carbon storage in the, in the trees and the roots. Are, are you buying your baby birds from others or are you hatching uh, on your place? Yeah, we're hatching all of our own birds, um, and that's another way we're trying to reduce our, our inputs and our cost is um, we have a small laying flock of ducks, um, and so it's only about 200 hens, um, and then we have some males in there with them, so we'll get fertilized eggs, and we'll hatch all those. We have a large incubator on the farm, and we'll hatch our own birds, and that saves us money instead of having to buy the birds. We were having some issues once upon a time getting, you know, sourcing uh, young ducklings. So we hatch all of our own birds on the farm, and that gives us a little bit better control of uh, which uh, which 
factors we want to select for, whether it be you know, growing ability or foraging ability or temperament, and, and we can kind of control those factors a little bit that way. So from the time uh, an egg is laid uh, and, until you process the, the end bird, how, how long is that? Mm-hmm. What's that cycle? For ducks, um, so when the egg is laid, um, the incubation time is 28 days. It takes to incubate a duck egg. Um, once we get that hatchling, we raise it for seven to eight weeks uh, until harvest. Um, so it's a pretty quick turnaround, you know, seven to eight weeks. So if and and that's another great thing about um, making small farms work is I can raise. I'm doing poultry. I can raise about 500 birds every for, on two acres um, for that complete life cycle. And if I'm getting an average of about five pounds, that gives me about 2,500 pounds of meat in seven to eight weeks on two acres. Uh, which, in contrast, if I was raising cattle, um, I would get you know, maybe two cows on two acres, um, which would be approximately 1,800 pounds of usable meat. And that would take about a year and a half if I was doing grass-fed beef. Um, so it would take a year and a half you know, for 1,800 pounds of beef versus eight weeks, 2,500 pounds of poultry. Um, so we can really uh, maximize our production of the land space um, and maximize you know, how much land we're using um, oh. when you're well, raising poultry. I mean, you could do. I mean, you could do lambs and goats quicker than cattle, but they still are not going to mm-hmm. be really as fast as a turnaround you're talking about. That's right. So that's. that's right. So let me. Uh, well, let's skip to the end here for a second, because yeah. when it is time to harvest them, somewhere you got to process these ducks and turkeys uh, and, and geese. Where do you do that? How do you do it? We were doing our own processing on farm. Uh, there is an exemption for poultry, and you can follow as long as you follow certain guidelines. You can process your own poultry. Um, it's different for every state, uh, and every state has its own requirements and its own limitations. Um, we were limited to a thousand birds per year, and then if we followed some other uh, requirements, we could process up to twenty thousand birds a year on our farm. Um, but we started doing that at the beginning, and then I realized if we really wanted to scale this, um, I needed to take them to a, a facility who really um, could process them and do them well. Uh, so we now we use a USDA processor. Um, there's several of them. Um, not a lot of them do ducks because they're a little trickier. They're kind of a waterproof chicken. You know, they got about 10 times the number of feathers, and so they can be tricky to get uh, to do it and do it well and get a nice clean carcass without any feathers on it. Um, so that was a little bit of a challenge finding a processor to work with. Um, but, um, but it has been invaluable to find somebody that's got the right equipment, um, and can do a great job, uh, and, and be reliable source, uh, for that. And we, you know, they're a big part of our farm, you know, it's, you know, it's definitely, uh, uh, you rely on a lot of different people to make it work, you know, between feed and, and sourcing chicks and using a processor, you know, there's a lot of people at play in your farm. So you have, sometimes there's factors out of your control, but, um, but that's so, key. Um, so are you selling them, uh, fresh or do you, are you selling them frozen? We, all of our products are frozen. Um, we just don't harvest often enough to have fresh product all the time. 
The one advantage of using a USDA certified uh, processing facility is they have a USDA inspector on site. So that allows us to do things we wouldn't be able to do ourselves. So we can do, um, we can, we, we like to use the whole bird so we can take what's left after we, like if we part out a bird and you take the breast and the legs and the wings off what's left, the back, uh, the bones, the meat and a little bit of skin left, we can grind that into a dog food. Um, we can do sausages. We can do, um, you know, lots of different things that we wouldn't be able to do ourselves. And we can also sell it across state lines. So if we want to go to a market across, you know, in Georgia, we can do that. If we want to sell online and ship it, we can do that as well. Um, so there's a lot of, you know, additional things we can do with that, that processing. So now, now let's talk about, about marketing then. Um, yeah. What happens to them? How do you, how are you marketing your, the frozen birds? Yeah. So we, um, one of the big things that we did early on, um, was we started marketing to chefs in our area. Um, the local food movement has really grown. Um, and I think it has in a, in a lot of places. Um, and we have a lot of chefs that really value that. And so I started marketing them early on and, and talking to them and, and giving them some samples of our product. And I was fortunate that I had a local chef, um, you know, believe in what I was doing. I remember early on and, uh, I, I gave him a, a chicken and said, Hey, just try it. Tell me what you think, you know? And he said, yeah, this is great. And I said, okay, wonderful. And I said, do you want to buy some? He said, yeah. And I said, and I hadn't, hadn't ordered any birds yet. And I was kind of, you know, waiting on his answer to see, okay, should I buy more birds? How many do I need to get? I said, well, how many do you want? He said, well, give me two dozen. I said, okay. So I went and, and that first, that was, I, I guess the first real sale I made, he, he ordered two dozen birds. And so I bought 50 and I you know gave him the two dozen. I had two dozen more to sell and, um, and it just grew from there. And I, and it really, it was really cool to, for him to have that, um, confidence in me and, and to get that uh, relationship started. Cause I think, uh, without that, it, it would have been, I'd be, I don't know if I would have be where I am today to have that confidence from him. Um, but that got us on the on the way, and um, you know it's great to have those consistent sales. So we work a lot with local restaurants. Um, we do a lot of wholesale. Um, in addition, we sell at several different farmers markets nearby, and we also sell online. Um, one thing we found um, is there's been a great demand on the wholesale side to restaurants, but of course your profit margin is much smaller. Um, so one thing that we found has been key is um, trying to add value to our products to increase our profit margin, uh, particularly when we're selling direct to consumer at the market. Um, so for example, um, if I wholesale a bird to a chef, you know, we typically make $10 or so on a bird. Um, but if we turn that into value added products, so we, um, can do sausages and cured meats and, we can do pet food and we can do bone broth and we can do, you know, all these different things. Um, then we can turn that and we can make five to six times more profit per bird um, retailing it like that than we can wholesaling it. And so that means that we can raise five or six times fewer birds on the same acreage, uh, you know, to make the same amount of money, which makes small farms and small acreage, you know, much more feasible opportunity. But you have to pay somebody to do the extra processing, right? I mean, like if you just put a, a whole bird as cleaned and, and frozen uh, and, and 
you know, that's a whole lot different than if they start cutting it up and getting different pieces and, and doing. So you do have more labor involved, right? To, to, to do the added value. Yes, there is a little bit of extra labor. Um, we use a, there's a local, uh, commissary that I use that's, uh, you know, inspected, certified by the health department facility. And, you know, it's funny because, you know, when we started, you know, approaching this value added market, um, one thing that I found at the farmer's markets is not a lot of people buy a whole duck, <laughs> you know, um, they might buy one on occasion for Christmas or Valentine's day, but they don't eat a whole duck every, you know, every once a week. You know, very few people do. I don't even, um, so we found it was easier to sell parts and it was easier to, to sell things that were pre-cooked or, or just easy to, to work with. And so we found a local commissary. We started doing some different products. I was able to get our process approved and we could make things such as, um, you know, uh, different cured sausages and we could do like a duck confit and we could do this bone broth. And, you know, it, it, when you look at the grand scheme of things, the amount of time we put in for, to raise a bird, um, you know, to take care of the animals, to feed them, to do the processing, the, the marketing, everything that goes into a week's worth of work on a farm. When we do the value-added stuff, we're really only adding a few extra hours a week. I mean, it's not a lot. You know, you, I, I think I spend on average about five hours a week in the kitchen. Um, so if you look at a 40-hour week, to add an extra five hours of work on top of that to get five to six times more revenue is, I mean, that's a no brainer. I think everybody should be doing it. And we've also found that not only are we selling, we have a bigger variety and a bigger, bigger selection to offer customers. Um, but that profit margin is much greater. Um, mm -hmm. Farmers take all the risk um, and do all the hard work of creating a food product, but the, they get the smallest slice of the pie Sure. You know, when you when you reach when you wholesale it to a restaurant or a middleman or a grocery store, they're getting the big piece of the pie, and the farmer's getting the tiniest slice. So we want to kind of put that on, spin that on its head, and say, hey, okay, as a farmer, we want to keep a big piece of the pie and be rewarded for our, our hard effort. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And that's the story yeah. we hear all over: is that farmers yeah. are getting such a small share of whatever the food dollar is, and it's gotten mm -hmm. worse. And what you're doing is trying to make it better, which which brings me to the other point. And I always kind of feel a little funny about trying to ask this because I don't want to be too nosy about your business. But I don't know how to ask other than to say, have you been able to have that be profitable enough that you're you're finding you're able to make a living off your farm um, without having to have a lot of other things going on as the farm supporting you? Yeah, absolutely. So. You know, and, and that was a big thing that I learned early on is um, you can spend a lot of money on a farm. <laughs> you know, I was always trying to figure out, you know, get the latest and best, you know, piece of equipment and, and trying you know, different ways to do things, trying to save time or trying to save money. And I quickly ran up about $80,000 um, in debt, just, just trying different things and throwing different things at the wall, seeing what would stick. And um, it's really hard to start a business and keep it going when you've got that kind of debt facing you. Um, and so what I learned was that I, 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 through a lot of trial and error, I, I found some things that worked and some things that a lot of things that didn't work, but a few things that did. And so I've kind of distilled all the stuff that did work down um, into a course that I can uh, teach others. Um, 
And this past year, we were going to gross um, you know, six-figure business, close to two hundred thousand. Um, you know, just farming on seven acres. Um, and I think that's you know uh, we've come a long way, and it's definitely supporting us. It's definitely profitable, and it's been a a, a long journey to get to where we are. But I've I've figured out the hard way that you can do this without making the mistakes I did without taking on that huge debt. Um, and, and a lot of, uh, what my course focuses on is, um, is saving money. So building a lot of your own infrastructure instead of paying, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars, um, for a lot of equipment, if you can even find stuff, cause it's really hard to find, um, the tools and equipment you need to start a small pastured poultry operation. You can find, you can go to your farm store and find things for a backyard flock of 10 or 12 birds, but you can't, or you can go and, and get a half a million dollar loan and build out a huge facility, but you can't, there's not much for anything in between. Um, and so I had to learn the hard way, you know, how am I going to feed all these birds and water them? And, and how am I going to store feed without spending 10 grand on a feed silo and, you know, things like that. Um, and then, so the first part of it is, you know, trying not to go into debt and, and saving money. And then the second part of it is learning how to make money and maximize your profit. Um, and so we've done that by finding out what our actual true costs are and um, maximizing our, our profit margin by adding value to our products and, and working with chefs so we have those regular accounts and those regular sales each week. Um, and, and that's what I've really, we're, we're doing the farm and the farm's successful this year and we're doing really good. Um, and, and now I really want to try to make an impact on other people. Um, I want, I think the more people that have regenerative farms like this, the better it is for, for, uh, our food, for our food system, for the economy, for the environment. And I'd, I'd love to just share with people, you know, what I've learned so they can avoid the same pitfalls and they can hit the ground running. Well, Hey, let's talk about sharing with people. I want to. I'm going to wrap yeah. up. This has been really enjoyed this conversation and I've learned a lot from it. I'm about ready to go figure out how I can get some ducks or turkeys. Well, I got the turkeys. <laughs> They're not really mine. They just visit and come through my, through my yard. But if, if people will be interested in uh, connecting with you about, about your classes and, and, and the, want to learn more about how you've done what you've done, how do they reach you, Jeff? Yeah. So um, one thing I would want, I would love to do is offer folks um, some free resources that they can use to kind of get started. Um, so like we we're talking before, I, I have a little report that I'll put together for folks to, to kind of guide their decision on some of the best poultry breeds they can use uh, as far as for meat and egg production. And if they want to find that resource, they can just go to farmingtribe.com backslash table talk. And that's where they'll find it. And they can just enter their email address and I'll send them that, shoot them that free report. And, um, and then they'll be part of the community and, um, and we can have conversations and, and hopefully um, help other folks, uh, you know, get started uh, to a successful regenerative farm. Say that, say that address again. Yes. It's farmingtribe.com backslash table talk. You said farming, are you saying farming tribe, T-R-I-E-D? Uh, farming tribe, T-R-I-B-E. Well, see, I'm glad I asked because it was hard to tell the difference <laughs> there. So farming tribe, T-R-I-B-E.com. And it's with uh, Jeff Sawicki. 
Jeff, you know, one thing as I kind of wrap up, I'm thinking about is in the days when I could fly down into your neck of the woods and I've driven through, uh, you know, the beautiful area, you're not far from, from Charleston and know that area. One thing in that whole corner of the country, you see so much ground that's, uh, you know, pine trees and forests and pastures are nearby. But one thing that strikes me as you were describing it, there is a lot of places that could be growing a lot more food than we are right now. And and obviously, there's so many conversations about people that are not um, not able to get enough food to eat, maybe food deserts and so forth. And yet, when you when you do get back to looking across the country, there is a lot of area that could be able to be growing more food than they are currently. And, and Jeff, I can just see you turning an army of Jeff's loof, loose uh, out on, the, on that land like that and getting ducks and geese and, and what have you um, and turkeys, uh, taking advantage of that, producing more good protein for people in a regenerative way. Uh, way to go, Jeff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, we are here in the southeast. Our, our situation's a little bit unique, and it's going to be different anywhere in the country or even across the globe. Um, but that's the nice thing about um, regenerative agriculture is there's no hard and fast rules. Um, that's the great thing about poultry is they're a quick turnaround. So even if you have a big, long winter, you can raise poultry in the spring or summer, and, and then, you know, they're finished and harvested before, you know, the hard freeze sets in. So this kind of thing can be applicable um, at a lot of different geographic locations, and you can use poultry or silvopasture and grow trees and and raise poultry in, in wooded areas. And so you can utilize a lot of areas of, of land that typically wouldn't be suitable for row crops, for example. Um, and so I think that really opens up a lot of opportunity at different places uh, and, and, and different places across the country. Well, I appreciate your taking this time to be on Farm to Table Talk and sharing these opportunities. And I know there's some people that are listening that think, and I might give this a try and they'll probably, you'll hear from them. And I know other people say, I think I'm going to start taking, uh, looking out for some duck and turkey and, and other products that we might not be eating as much of as we could be. Um, so for all those different reasons and for all those listeners, I just want to thank you for being on Farm to Table Talk. Yeah, thank you, Roger. I appreciate um, you putting this together, and it's been a joy listening to your podcast and, and learning new things every day. I'm always learning new stuff, so, so thank you for that, for all the effort you put in. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. 